O Britain, Britain, how is thy glory vanished? How are thy annals stained with the blood of thy children? Abigail Adams to Mercy Otis Warren, May 2nd, 1775. Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 4.28, Lexington and Concord. April 18th, 1775 was not a great time to be Thomas Gage. As had been the case with his predecessors, he had found nothing but frustration in his time as the governor. However, unlike Francis Bernard or Thomas Hutchinson, Gage had seen his power evaporate during his time in control. By the middle part of April, he had all but completely lost control over Massachusetts, outside of Boston itself. He had spent months dealing with a population that neither listened nor cared what he had to say, and was busy collecting weapons and ammunition that were almost certainly going to be used against him. A month and a half earlier, Gage had attempted to send his troops out to Salem to recover some of those stolen cannons. In a humiliating display, the colonists in Salem managed to turn the British regulars around and sent them marching right back towards Boston, empty-handed. Yet as bad as things had been at the end of February, now they seemed so much worse. London had grown tired of the crisis that had gripped their North American colonies for the last decade. Earlier in the year, Parliament had declared that Massachusetts was in open revolt. Although they were planning to replace Gage by this point, Lord Dartmouth wrote to him, letting him know that he needed to do something to regain control over the situation. Gage had troops at his command, and things had gone far enough. Dartmouth still desperately clinging to the idea that an uprising in America was limited in scope to a handful of rabble-rousers, encouraged Gage to make his move and arrest the ringleaders. It was time to bring New England back into line. On April 18th, Gage decided to follow the orders from Dartmouth and act. Now, arresting the rebel leadership was not going to be in the cards. Gage, considering just how precarious his position really was, had little interest in actually setting off a war. Arresting the likes of Samuel Adams or John Hancock was likely to bring about that result. Historian J.L. Bell, in his book The Road to Concord, argues that Gage probably never intended to move on the rebel leadership. Bell points out that he had the opportunity to do just that. Men like Dr. Warren, for instance, were in Boston and could have easily been arrested. However, this never happened. Instead, Gage's interest fell to the capture of weapons and ammunition being held both in Worcester and Concord. I would be doing all of you a wild disservice if I jumped right into the battle, because before I can do that, we need to talk about Paul Revere. If there is any one moment of the entire American Revolution that I truly believe needs to be made into a light-hearted adventure movie, it is Paul Revere's Ride. Of course, we all know the story. He lights two lanterns, and then goes streaking across the countryside screaming, The British are coming. The British are coming. The problem 
is that this famous retelling of Revere's Ride comes to us from an 1861 poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The actual story is much more fascinating and not just a little bit comedic. If you enjoy the following, I would recommend Paul Revere's Ride by David Hackett Fisher. I do lean on his work here, and his telling of the actual events of that night are absolutely fantastic. By April 15th, it was obvious that something was up. On April 16th, Paul Revere personally gave a warning to John Hancock and Samuel Adams, who were now out in Lexington, just in case Gage decided to move in and arrest them. He warned them that the British were busy preparing for something. On his return to Boston, Revere did stop in Charlestown to set up a series of signals in order to increase response time should the British decide to go ahead and make a move. If the troops move inland, on foot via the neck, a single lantern would be hung from the Old North Church. Should the British look for a repeat of February's attempt on Salem and move on boats, there would be two lit lanterns. Paul Revere was one of several express riders that were positioned around Boston. They would, at first sight of a change inside the city, race out warning the neighboring areas that something might be coming. Now, Gage was well aware of these advanced riders, and on the 18th he sent out patrols to intercept the riders before they could race out and give their warnings. This would, however, prove to be his first mistake of the night, because the riders sent out to intercept the express riders were easily spotted and thus avoided. Despite this minor bump in the road, Gage was ready to proceed on the night of the 18th. Paul Revere had been warned late in the afternoon of the 18th that the British were going to march that same day. The news came to Revere courtesy of a boy who let him know that the British hanging around their horse stables had been talking a bit too loudly of their planned march. This, combined with the activity of the past few days, seemed to corroborate that the British were indeed preparing for something major. Dr. Warren, who by this time had become a major source of information inside of Boston, also sensed from the movement of the men that something big was about to happen. Warren, additionally, may have been tipped off by a spy inside of the British leadership. There has long been debates as to who the identity of this person may have been. However, one of the suspects, if not the primary suspect, is Margaret Gage, the wife of Governor Thomas Gage. An American by birth, she had long shown sympathies to the American cause. Thomas Gage, too, seems to have suspected that his wife may have been sharing information, as their relationship would begin to sour following the events of the 18th. Revere made his way over to Dr. Warren's, and both men agreed with getting out to Lexington to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock. Although the evidence suggests that the rebel leadership were probably not the target of Gage on the 18th, the Americans thought otherwise. Both the British and the Americans were well aware of each other. The British ran regular patrols to intercept would-be riders, seeking to provide a warning. Warren therefore decided to hedge his bets, sending both Hancock and William Dawes out with the same target and message. However, he sent them along different routes as a backup. The letter that the men both carried estimated, in overestimation as it would turn out, that some 12 to 1,500 regulars were now on the move. 
as they had done months earlier. The British had not chosen to travel through the neck, but rather by boats across the Charles River. Revere's first stop, therefore, was by the Old North Church. Despite the presence of nearby British officers, the rector of the church, Robert Newman, along with Thomas Bernard, proceeded to the steeple where they lit two lanterns, indicating that the British were moving via the water and not through the neck. The signal was short, lasting only two minutes. However, it had the necessary effect. Across the river in Charlestown, the steeple had been under constant surveillance. The two minutes was enough. Just like that, across the river, they were now aware that the British were on the move as the information began to spread. For Revere, however, his job was not to spread a general alarm. Rather, it was far more specific. He needed to get Adams and Hancock out of Lexington before the regulars got there. William Dawes took the exit through the neck, meaning that Revere would need to travel in a boat across the Charles River. This was no simple task, as the British had moved the HMS Somerset into the river. The Somerset was a formidable ship of the line, equipped with 64 guns. The ship would surely have watches which, if caught in the moonlight, would have easily been able to spot Revere in his little rowboat. However, Revere's boatman did a masterful job of keeping in the shadows, and he managed to cross the river unseen. Once in Charlestown, Revere quickly mounted a horse and sprinted off towards Lexington. As we previously discussed, however, Gage had anticipated that there could be some pesky express riders who were eager to spoil his surprise, and hence sent out an advance patrol to prevent this very thing from happening. One such group spotted Revere riding towards Lexington. Thankfully for Revere, he too quickly noticed the welcoming party and booked it the other direction, avoiding capture. The problem now, however, is that Revere was forced to go well out of his way to avoid detection, when time was very much of the essence. As a result of the delay, it was midnight on April 19th when he finally reached Lexington. Upon his arrival, he was not greeted by a town mere hours away from war. In fact, he came into a town that was very much asleep. A sergeant in the local militia yelled at him to shut up. People weren't trying to sleep after all. Revere, loudly, informed the man that it would get much louder when the regulars arrived. After issuing his warning, Revere proceeded to the Clark House, where Adams and Hancock were hiding. Shortly after the arrival of Revere, William Dodds also would pop up with his identical message. For the next hour and a half, the men discussed the events. They were able to figure out that Hancock and Adams were likely not the primary mission, meaning that the real danger was up the road in Concord. With Hancock and Adams warned, Dawes and Revere set out to Concord to warn them as well, as Lexington was left to prepare for the coming army. Revere, Dawes, and another man they picked up along the way, Dr. Samuel Prescott, made their way towards Concord, warning the small towns and villages along the way of the approaching danger. Here, disaster struck for Revere, and he ran directly into a patrol of British officers looking to intercept riders just as himself. Although Dawes and Prescott managed to escape capture, Paul Revere was not so lucky. Without a doubt, Revere was in a rough spot here. 
However, rather than trying to hide what he was doing, he turned directly into the skid. He told his handful of captors that he was indeed outwarding the countryside of the approaching British army. He let them know details of the British mission, details that even the men listening were not yet aware of. He also told them that he had roused some 500 men who were preparing to defend the country. The candor of Revere, and the threat of an army of some 500 angry colonists, did a good job to sufficiently worry the British soldiers. The 10 British regulars holding Revere, as well as a few others that they had captured, decided that they wanted to head back to Lexington to see just what was up. Here, it was luck that would save Revere. As the men approached Lexington, where the British holding Revere were concerned that several hundred armed colonists were waiting to greet them, they heard the unmistakable sound of muskets being fired. Moments later, there was another large volley. It was clear. Revere was not lying. He was warning the men. Now, convinced that there was indeed a battle about to break out, the British decided that they needed to go give their commanding officers a warning. Prisoners would just slow them down, so the decision was made to release Revere and company. Their horses were taken from them, and the British officers raced off into the night to let everybody know that fighting had broken out in Lexington. Just like that, Revere was once again a free man. This brings up a pretty obvious question, however. Where did the gunshots come from? As it turns out, the British were taking their sweet time getting to Lexington. Earlier during that night, when they had crossed the river heading towards Cambridge, they could only get the boat so close to the shore, meaning that they had to exit and move through the water, which reached up past their knees. Rather than slosh around in wet boots, the British just kind of milled around for a bit, drying off but making no actual progress. One of the major effects of this is that, despite the warnings from Revere, the rumored British army moving towards Lexington was nowhere to be seen. At around the same time that Revere had left Lexington, sometime around 1.30 in the morning, the militia assembled under the command of Captain John Parker. By the time that 3 a.m. had rolled around and the British had yet to materialize, likely annoyed, Parker determined that Revere's message was a false alarm and proceeded to disband them in. All wound up, many of the militia members decided to head over to Buckman's Tavern, a local Lexington watering hole, to get a drink. Recognizing that loaded muskets in the presence of alcohol was a bad mixture, the men discharged their muskets prior to heading inside. This is the volley that Revere's captors had heard that had so thoroughly spooked them into releasing their prisoners. Returning back to Lexington, it was now around 3 a.m. Revere decided that he should go back and check in at Clark House to ensure that Samuel Adams and John Hancock were long gone. Much to his dismay, the two men were not long gone and were very much still hanging around arguing, just as they had been when Revere had last left them. Hancock was itching for a fight and very much wanted to head out with his musket to single-handedly win the war. Adams, on the other hand, was busy trying to talk him down, explaining that they had to fight the war a different way, and that Hancock was much more useful with a pen rather than a gun. With much cajoling, Adams and Revere managed to convince Hancock that it was time to go. They climbed into Hancock's fancy and extremely noticeable coach 
and made their way to the northwest of the town. There, Hancock suddenly realized that there was a serious problem. He had left his aunt and fiancé back at the Clark House in Lexington. But that was actually all fine and good. That's not really the problem. The problem, you see, is that he also forgot to bring along a really wonderful salmon that had been given to him the previous day. Hancock sent his coach back to pick up his fiancée and aunt, and most importantly of all, his fish. Sure, they all stood on the precipice of war, but at least the salmon was safe. As Hancock prepared for a delicious salmon at 3.30 in the morning, Revere returned to Lexington where suddenly another problem appeared. Although Hancock had not forgotten his fish, he and Adams had left behind a large trunk filled to the brim with papers critical to the American cause. Revere was approached by John Lowell, who begged for help moving the trunk from the second floor of Buckman's Tavern. Revere agreed, and upon arrival, he found the place to be extremely active as people milled around and rumors spread. Earlier that night, Parker had disbanded everybody under the auspices that the warning by Revere was wrong. However, right as Revere arrived at the tavern, a writer showed up and let the crowd know that the warning was not incorrect, and that indeed the British were right down the road. As Revere and Lowell raced up the stairs to retrieve the very large trunk filled with critical information, Revere peered out the window and saw just how close the British were. The column was clearly approaching the town, and would be arriving within minutes. Together, Lowell and Revere were able to move the trunk out into the local woods, as, out on Lexington Green, the militia mustered and formed ranks. Unable to move the very heavy trunk any further, the two men just went ahead and buried it. Shortly thereafter, the news reached Adams and Hancock that this was no drill. The regulars were approaching Lexington, and that... On second thought, they were still far too close. The men were forced to move on foot, which meant leaving behind both Hancock's carriage and his fish and moving further west. Lexington was a town on edge as they mustered that morning. The men were acutely aware of Adams and Hancock's presence and their importance to the cause. Though speculation existed between Revere and the other two men about the actual British objectives, the militiamen out on Lexington Green stood convinced that Adams and Hancock were the targets. Although the evidence overwhelmingly supports that the troops would have just passed through Lexington without stopping at the Clark House as they moved towards Concord, the men assembling did not know this. At approximately 4.30 a.m., the British Light Infantry under the command of Major John Pitcairn marched into Lexington. Pitcairn was acting as a forward guard, with the rest of the British under the command of Colonel Francis Smith, who was the primary commander that night. As the British reached Lexington Green, they found that the militia had assembled to greet them. Pitcairn, who was not interested in backing down, ordered his six companies of infantry into battle formation. What followed was utter confusion. The British had arranged themselves into a long line of men facing the militia. For the militia, it had to be a harrowing sight. In front of them stood a British army in battle formation. They had guns fixed with bayonets, and they proceeded to stare down the militia. Unsurprisingly, when a British officer, 
who was probably Picarin, told the militia to lay down their guns and disperse. Many of them thought that this seemed like a pretty good idea. Captain Parker, however, thought differently, informing the men that if any of them should attempt to back down, he would shoot them on sight. The bravado of Captain Parker would prove to be short-lived. As the British line closed in within a hundred yards of the Americans, Parker suddenly decided that he was not all that interested in a war, and ordered his men to fall out. Despite the Americans deciding to back down and allow the regulars to pass, for Picarin, this was still not enough. He yelled orders at the Americans to lay down those guns. Although Parker was resigned to backing down and not engaging the regulars, the order to lay down their guns went unanswered. It is important to realize that the events that night in Lexington Green were chaotic. As the British were forming into battle lines, they did not do so quietly. The men were noisy and were shouting huzzas as they moved. Those on the ground reported that it was difficult to hear much of anything over the shouting of the men. Both the Americans and the regulars were nervous at what was occurring. Forming into a battle formation that was facing off against an American militia was an action fraught with danger for both sides. Now, despite Pickcarran telling the militia to lay down their weapons, nobody was listening to him. The truth of what would happen next has forever been lost to history. Both the Americans and the British would point fingers at one another, claiming that it had been the other side. However, regardless of who had done it, somebody had fired a shot. Upon hearing the sound, a British officer ordered the men to fire. The regulars fired a volley into the militia. Despite his attempts to get his men to cease firing, Pitcairn was unable to prevent a second volley from being fired into the Americans. Although the American militia would manage to get off a few shots, they were all ineffective, causing only a single injury to a British private. In the American lines, eight men were dead and another ten had been wounded. Captain Parker was among the dead. The battle at Lexington was short, ending just a few minutes after it began. The British were soon joined by the remainder of their army under Smith. Despite what had just happened, the British had absolutely no intentions of backing down. Their objective was Concord, and some dead Americans were not about to stop them. With the element of surprise now completely gone, the men quickly left Lexington, marching two drums towards Concord. Concord, as we have discussed, was always the ultimate destination for the regulars. At the time of his capture, Revere had been making his way there to warn them of the approaching danger. And although Revere never made it to Concord, his warning did. Recall earlier today when we discussed that Revere was joined on his trip to Concord by William Dawes and Samuel Prescott? Well, Revere and Dawes failed to ever reach Concord. Prescott did make it back and was able to convey his message. Quickly, news of the regulars spread throughout the entire countryside, and men were flocking to both Lexington and Concord, looking to provide assistance wherever they could. It was around 7 a.m. when the British reached Concord and began to enter the town. More specifically than just Concord, the real goal was the home of colonist James Barrett, 
where it was thought that most of the supplies were hiding. The British had a problem, however, one that Gage seems to have just outright ignored. The Americans knew in advance of April 19th that Concord was going to be a target of the British. Barrett was well aware that his house was a target and had, accordingly, made sure to remove the supplies from there, not only from his house, but out of Concord altogether. There was nothing for the British to find. Now, lest we think that maybe Gage was somehow unaware of this, evidence points to the fact that he had personally learned during the day on the 18th that supplies and weapons had been moved out of Concord. This, of course, begs the question of just why Gage decided to go through with the mission if he knew that the sought-after supplies were long gone. Historian J.L. Bell points towards the inertia of the moment. London was clamoring for a response. The Concord mission was mere hours away. It was simply easier to press forward than to deviate. For Gage, doing something, regardless of how ineffective it may prove, outweighed doing nothing. Colonel Smith entered Concord without opposition. In at least one instance, the militia marched out, made sure that Smith and the regulars could see them, before withdrawing and allowing them to pass. Quickly, Smith had gained control over the majority of Concord without any kind of a fight. Considering that the Americans were well aware of the British intention to move on Concord, nothing meaningful had been left behind in the city, meaning that there was little to really defend. There were a few hundred pounds of musket balls, tools for digging trenches and carriage wheels for moving cannons, However, the actual cannons that Gage was so desperate to find were long gone before the morning of the 19th. As the militia stood idly by, watching the British search, they witnessed a fire break out at the local courthouse and blacksmith shop. By this time, militia from all over the colony had reached the hill right outside of Concord, where they could look down into the city. Despite the influx of men, however, and certainly some very angry fist shaking, nobody had, as of yet, seemed all that interested in going down and confronting the regulars. The fire, however, seemed to stir the men into action. It was Joseph Hosmer that posed a question to the officers watching the fire grow in Concord below. He asked, Will you let them burn the town? This got everybody moving, as the militia moved off their spot upon the hill and down towards North Bridge, where three companies of regulars were themselves milling about, well, the search of the town took place. The regulars, who were seriously outnumbered by the approaching militia, were in no mood to talk. Instead, the company in the front quickly fired, killing two of the militiamen on the spot. This, however, was not going to be a repeat of Lexington, where the militia could only haphazardly muster a few ineffective shots. Instead, the Americans returned fire, killing three and wounding another nine. The stunned regulars broke and fled as the militia proceeded into the town. At this point, however, delays in the colonists forming into ranks gave the British the chance they needed to get out of Concord. Really, there was nothing else for them there. The search had been a complete disaster, they had killed several Americans, and in the process had lost three of their own men. Smith was also cognizant that the Americans held a superior position and that their path out of Concord remained open, at least for the moment. By noon, Colonel Smith had had enough, 
anxious to get out of Concord while he still could, he hurried his men out of the town, and in short order was making his way back towards the safety of Boston. The militia allowed the British to leave Concord, despite being in a position where they could have easily attacked the withdrawing columns. However, likely out of confusion, the men held their fire. Even now, after blood had been spilled, nobody was quite sure what the situation truly was. Were they now at war? Nobody was interested in helping clarify that answer. As the British withdrew from Concord, the brutality of the day's events came into focus. When the regulars came upon one of their own dying, having been scalped with a hatchet, it took little time for rumors of American brutality to begin to spread amongst the regulars. As it would turn out, it was now, after the search of Concord was over, that the British would face their stiffest resistance. As they marched back through the woods, musket fire erupted from both sides of the road. The entire march back to Lexington was filled with militia picking off regulars as they marched in their long column. This was not a coordinated response by the Americans, to be sure. There was no grand strategy. For as much damage as they inflicted, historian Robert Middlecoff explains that the men were fighting as individuals. Although the Americans would cause significant casualties to the regulars, this lack of organization actually helped mitigate the overall effect, which was nowhere near as effective as it could have been. This attack continued until Smith got his army back to Lexington, where he was pleased to find a relief force with some 1,000 regulars. While Smith and his men were able to collect themselves, the Americans were attacked with artillery. This brought the regulars much-needed breathing room. However, it too would prove to be short-lived. On the road back towards Boston, the regulars would again fall under fire from the militias as they passed from town to town. News had spread all throughout the immediate area of what had taken place that morning, and the militias in these towns, knowing that the British were going to be coming through, made plans to greet them when they did. This would prove to be the most brutal portion of the entire march for the British, as fighting would often devolve into hand-to-hand -hand encounters. The thoroughly deflated British soldiers and officers made no attempt to protect personal property or civilians, who found themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time, as they too became open targets of what was now a moving battle. The heaviest fighting of the day took place in the town of Menetomy. The town, now Arlington, involved combat that would progress to house-to-house -house fighting. Men fought with anything they could, from their muskets to clubs, and at times just hand-to-hand. -hand. Historian David Hackett Fisher points out that the fighting that day in Minitomi saw 25 Americans die, to just nine injured. He suggests that numbers that are so skewed towards death is a clear indication of how intense the fighting had been. For their part during this battle, the British would see 40 of their men die, with another 80 wounded. It was during this portion of the fighting that British frustration turned into rage. Homes were burned, buildings were looted, and in some cases no quarter was given to those who were captured. Despite this violence, the militia just kept firing at the British column as they retreated back towards Boston. Every town brought yet another militia company that was well-rested and fresh, ready for a fight. 
unlike the absolutely exhausted and now thoroughly demoralized regulars. There is some evidence that the British officers did their best to curb some of the more extreme excesses of their men. However, by this point, it was to little effect. Their lines had been harassed for hours. The men were exhausted. They were angry, thus leading to a breakdown of discipline. It was not until the British reached Charlestown that the fighting finally stopped. The events of April 19th had been staggering. The Americans had suffered some 95 casualties, whereas the British had endured 273. We are going to discuss next time the reactions to what had just occurred. However, for the remainder of this week, I want to focus on the legacy left behind from the battle. Certainly, everything had changed. Just weeks before, days before, the Americans had been indignant at the suggestion that they were in open rebellion against Great Britain. When everybody went to sleep on the 18th, that was still very much the case. By the end of the 19th, it was almost impossible to pretend that they were not at war with the British Empire. If there were doubts in their minds about if a war had broken out, there was no doubt in their actions. By the next morning, thousands of militiamen had surrounded Boston, trapping the British inside. The neck was blocked and any regular that strayed outside of the city found themselves vulnerable to capture and imprisonment as an enemy. The Battle of Lexington and Concord can, at times, be wrapped up in the myth that would come to surround it. It was a chaotic affair for both the Americans and the British alike. Despite the fact that the regulars were the professional army in the matter, we see several instances where they showed their own lack of experience. Whether it is the loss of discipline along that retreat back towards Boston, to privates acting and firing at the Americans against their officers' orders back in Lexington and Concord. The encounter at the North Bridge in Concord, for example, never saw officers give an order to fire. Rather, it had been inexperienced, jumpy privates who had chosen to engage. For the Americans, we return to the line by Robert Middlecuff that the Americans were fighting as individuals rather than as a cohesive unit. This is not to say that the Americans fought literally with each individual calling the shots. Rather, the militias were made up of far smaller units. Although individual units acted on their own, the individuals within those units were expected to be coordinated and fight together. It is part of the mythology that is ingrained in the American psyche that the events at Lexington and Concord marked a moment where a bunch of innocent ragtag Americans had gone out been assaulted by the Goliath British Army, and proceeded to punch them in the nose. However, the reality is that the Americans, especially in Massachusetts, had spent months preparing for this eventuality. Paul Revere himself is an example of the actual coordination that did exist. Sure, there was yet to be a central commander, and the militia units functioned more or less independently from each other. However, within those militia units, there had been months' worth of preparation for when this day finally came. Following the loss, British officials would also quickly come to realize that they were not merely dealing with a bunch of angry rabble, but that the Americans were far more prepared than they had either anticipated or cared to acknowledge. April 19th had changed everything.
years of disagreement over British colonial policy had boiled over into a full-blown war. In an alternative history, you can question what would have happened if Lexington had been the end of it. Would eight dead Americans have been enough to pass that point of no return? We, of course, will never know the answer to this, because things did not end following Lexington. What had begun as eight dead militiamen in Lexington would end up becoming nearly 100 casualties for the Americans and over 270 for the British. As both sides worked through what had just happened and looked at the scores of injured and dead, it was unmistakable that a line had been crossed on both sides, a line from which there could be no return. Next time, we are going to look at the aftermath of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. If Massachusetts was now at war, what about everybody else? At the same time that they were having to grapple with the fact that Massachusetts was now at war with Great Britain, delegates would begin traveling towards Philadelphia for the Second Continental Congress. Until next time, I hope you all have a fantastic two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we watch the news of Lexington and Concord spread throughout the colonies. <laughs>